Welcome to another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today, we talk to entrepreneur and tech wizard Gabe Cooper about nonprofit leadership and particularly about how nonprofits can stop failing their donors. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. I am really happy to have the pleasure of speaking with Gabe Cooper, one of my fellow residents here in the Valley of the Sun. Gabe is the founder and CEO of Virtuous, a software platform, and this is the official language, that helps nonprofits grow their giving. Uh, But more than that, he is someone who thinks deeply and carefully about philanthropy and how successful nonprofits connect with donors, uh, what keeps nonprofits from being successful, and all that sort of thing. So I imagine this will be a highly practical, a very businessy conversation uh, today, and I'm very much looking forward to it. So, uh, Gabe, you have now been introduced. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It's uh, it's it's a strange time in which we are basically in the same city, but uh, are not in the same place. Uh, the next time we talk, maybe we'll we'll actually sit within six feet of each other and just do it face to face. Yeah, I'd love to. Honestly, getting a little stir crazy here, locked in my house. So I'm I'm looking for any excuse I can find to get out. Well, hopefully by the time people listen to this, uh, this will all seem like ancient history. That may be a forlorn forlorn hope, but let, let's hope that's the case. So, Gabe, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about virtuous, of course, and exactly what what you do there and about your background. But I'm just start out at a kind of a high level. This is, I'd say, going to be a very practical conversation, I'd imagine, um, uh, with, uh, for people who are really uh, in the nonprofit sphere. So let me ask you, what, what drives giving? Why do donors give? This, this must be a question you have to ask yourself all the time as you build out your, your business, because um, you're, you're in the business of helping nonprofits grow their giving. What, what motivates donors? How do they give? Yeah. It's a good question, and I think it's probably easiest to start by just thinking about how we give. And so sometimes as nonprofits, we think about donors as, as some other magical thing arose in a database. But um, I think just thinking about how we personally have given to nonprofits is a great place to start. So when I think about you know the organizations where my wife and I give, I know that we have uh, – an incredibly personal connection with each of those causes. In fact, like if I look at where we give right now, we probably know people on staff at most of those nonprofits or Mm -hmm. a lot of them. We have a very, very personal connection to the cause. So one of our favorite nonprofits we give to is called care for children. They do adoption and foster care in Asia. And when we got connected to that nonprofit, we were um, in the process of adopting ourselves Right. So there was a sort of a very, very personal connection. So we give for very personal reasons. We give locally, we give to places where we have a personal connection. And so as nonprofits, I think we can't sort of increase generosity in a meaningful way until we we fully reckon with the fact that that people are giving to us out of a deeply personal connection to our cause. It's not because they saw some 
statistic or number that compelled them, um, that can help. But at the end of the day, we give because we feel a personal connection. Yeah, you're not. Um, this is uh, you've heard me talk about this, which is probably why I brought up the question first. I know it's an area in which we really <laughs> agree strongly. Um, so people don't you don't find you personally, but others don't give just based on sort of like reading a, uh, an annual report, <laughs> or the equivalent of a balance sheet and deciding that this is a good investment to make. I'm making an investment in society. Uh, it's going to be a good return. Uh, does that does that ever enter into it or, or to, to what extent does that enter into people's giving decisions in your experience? No, I, I mean, I don't think it does, especially for that initial gift. And so I think if you're, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and you've commissioned a few people from Stanford to look at the biggest problems in the world and then find the right metrics and outcomes around those, then then your giving probably is a little bit more sort of data driven, right? You're looking at issues like sanitation from a metrics point of view to make a giving decision. But for the vast majority of us, we give from our heart first before we give from our head. We give to things that are close to us personally. Now, the caveat there is that that isn't always necessarily why we continue to give. And so if I give to an organization where I feel a close personal relationship, but mm-hmm. they can't report to me in a meaningful way what my gift accomplished in the world – like that's that's going to cause a problem. And so I will say sort of the retention piece, there is a sort of a metrics component to it, it metrics com- like combined with stories. But man, for that, it, for that initial gift, it's just hard for any of us to imagine a time where we gave completely rationally, logically to a cause we never heard of before because their their balance sheet looked right or their outcome metrics looked right. Well, that's a good refinement. That's a really good refinement of what my what I often say and I, what I just said. That uh, maybe it's maybe that local connection, heart giving, personal connection is more important for the first gift than it is in retaining uh, um, donors as continued uh, supporters of your organization. Um, so let's take a step back. Uh, I know you have some thoughts on this. Uh, not not all the trends, and let's just take COVID out of it right now. Let's pretend that this is March first. Uh, and the world is still relatively normal. Um, what are the trends that are impacting uh, giving, uh, maybe the United States in particular? Like what's what's good, maybe what's bad and what you're seeing in, in, in how giving is trending? Yeah. It's, um, we spend a lot of time looking at this data. We're part of, you know, giving at Student Giving USA report and look at a lot of other similar data sets. And there's definitely some pretty concerning stuff happening. So, Right now, um, individual giving represents roughly 70% of philanthropy in this country, meaning most of the money that comes to charities comes from individual people. Um, The amount that individuals give hasn't changed substantially, actually. Um, You know, we hover at, you know, 2.5% of GDP, I think is about $420 billion given this year. And that's been pretty consistent and kind of recession-proof, which is great. The problem is that if you look at the mix of that, the individuals who give, what you quickly realize is a greater and greater percentage of that money is coming from major donors. And so um, depending on the stats you look at, the, we've actually lost about 20% of our mid and low tier donors in the last decade, meaning 20% less Americans 
give to charities than gave. That's extraordinary. Oh, That's oh. a big number. Oh. Is that, is it, wow. I didn't know that actually. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a horrifying stat. And some people, you know, write that off as, you know, maybe changes in tax law, but actually the problem started long before any of the tax law came into effect or people talk about income inequality and, and, you know, income inequality can play into this for sure. But actually, if you look at um, how people give to charity as a percentage of income, people, you have to be almost under the poverty level, like under 20 grand a year in household income before giving as a percentage really starts to drop off for you. And so it can't be all chalked up to income inequality. I think what we're finding is um, people, mid and low tier donors expect a personal connection to the causes they care about. And they're expecting it for a few reasons. Number one, they've become really distrustful of institutions. Like it doesn't take very long watching the news before you realize people really don't trust big corporations. They don't trust government. They, what they trust is their friends and family, people in their tribe, people they're close to. Right. And so that's part of it. And the other part is we're all getting really personal sort of tailored connections to our for-profit brand. So, you know, like most of us, we've all binged Netflix like crazy during COVID. And Netflix magically knows what I want to watch. They know what I care about. They know, you know, what's the best next show for me. Amazon knows me deeply and intimately for some reason, right? Like Facebook, all of my news feeds, they're all hyper-personalized to me. And especially uh, millennials, but I would say, you know, even Gen Xers and boomers have come to expect this kind of personal connection. So when their favorite causes send them some nameless, faceless appeal written from an institutional point of view, like they don't trust it and they don't feel a connection. And so they try to find other ways to make a difference in the world instead of giving to their favorite charity. We'll come back to this because I know you've, you've built, I know, virtuous precisely to solve that issue but let me throw i want to throw some other rival theories uh, or perhaps complementary theories on onto the table you tell me what you think of them um one of the huge we know that people who uh, identify as religious who who attend uh worship services uh more frequently give more that's a that's a, a right correct um and we also know that the percentage of people who identify uh, with a particular uh, religious tradition has declined dramatically over the last just generation, maybe even 10 years, 10 to 15 years. Uh, the rise of the nuns, we hear about that, right? N-O-N-E-S. Alas, not the rise of the N-U-N-S. Uh, that would be either a different problem or something to celebrate. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> the rise of the nuns. So is that um, what's happening here? Is that why we've, we're losing donors because uh religion is what really drives people to care to give to hope um what do you think yeah i mean i think it's a great theory i i do think there's probably a lot of truth in that i mean just sort of you know setting aside personal beliefs for a second and just looking purely at numbers we realize that um uh, always the biggest chunk of individual giving in this country is to faith-based organizations, right? And so that's not just church, but it's nonprofits that, that sort of have a statement of faith. And so, you know, that spans 
you know, primarily in this country, uh, Jewish organizations, Catholic organizations, and Protestant or evangelical organizations. And so um, that is definitely true from the numbers. And so uh, a dropping number of people who affiliate with faith is sort of, you know, there's a natural outcome of that. And so I I think there is a lot of truth in that. I think that's one vector that we can look at and measure. But I would still say that the the drop in individual giving in this country has been more precipitous than the rise of the nuns, if that makes sense. No, like, you're probably right. For part of it, but I don't know that it accounts for all of it. Yeah, and, and I haven't done the math on it. You're you're probably right. But I'm I'm trying to get everything on the table before we get back to your um, <laughs> you know this experience not being what people now expect because um, that does make sense to me. But these other things make sense to me too. The the other thing that comes into my mind when I hear you talk is, okay, well you say it's you you give because you have a personal connection to the organization to people there. Uh, it's local. Well, the other thing we've had um, over the last generation is an increase in the number of people who are bowling alone, right? To use the the phrase of uh, the term of art, uh, people are very disconnected. They're not just distrustful of institutions; they're disconnected from other people in associational ways. They, the you know, Kiwanis Club is not what it used to be. The Elks are not what they used to be. Bowling leagues are not what they used to be. We already mentioned that church attendance is not what it used to be. Um, this is one of my major concerns, which we can get to in a second about COVID, uh, is that it will just only accelerate these isolating habits. Um, and we see uh, concomitant increases in anxiety, loneliness, suicide, etc. Um, but is that another theory that we have to take account of? Is that it's not just that the experience people have it's not as personalized as it is when they shop at Land's End. I don't even know if Land's End exists anymore. What a terrible example. You know what I mean. Uh, or, uh, but it's also, they're just not, they don't have those personal connections that would generally lead people to, to be charitable, to give. Yeah. I think that's especially true, especially when you think about um, local giving or just even thinking about others first. Um, and, and I agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, I think Ben Sass describes that as the the Friday night at a high school basketball game kind of feeling where you where in communities you actually are sitting side by side with people and even people that think different than you, you're not quite so critical of, you're more empathetic of because you're hanging out with them all the time, right? And a lot of that has has gone away in our more silo disconnected culture and you see rise of depression, rise of suicide and all of that kind of stuff. And so I do think that's, that's part of it, but I think how nonprofits have responded has exacerbated the issue. And so instead of really leaning in right, and saying, no, we're going to, we're going to create personal connection. We're going to push back against the norms and, and especially around generosity. I mean, it's the most selfless others focused act that you could potentially do. It has the ability to form the heart of the giver in amazing ways. And so instead of leaning into that nonprofits have sort of gone with the flow and been okay with like impersonal broadcast style communications. And so I, that the problem you mentioned is a massive problem, but, um, yeah, I think, uh, if anything, we're exacerbating it. I, I think you're right. And I'm going to ask you later, I want to ask you what you what are some of the worst and best things you've seen um, nonprofits uh, do in the last 
since you've been doing Virtuous in particular, but before we get to that, I'm going to get back to one other thing I mentioned. I want to get your opinion. What, what will, how has COVID changed things for, for nonprofits? Um, and will any of that be kind of lasting or permanent? Uh, do you have a thought on this? Like what's the impact going to be long-term on civil society or maybe even just in the shorter intermediate term um, of what we've gone through the last few months? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious to see. I wish I had a crystal ball. I do think the fact that people are more isolated now than ever um, is going to be problematic. I think that uh, I'm hoping that this is a wake-up call for all of us, and in, in charities in particular, but that we're not sort of built to be alone. And so maybe this will push us more into community. At least that's my hope coming out of it, that people will realize, you know, sitting by yourself all the time sort of sucks. And so yeah. I, I need people, I need relationship, I need purpose. Um, that's my hope. My uh, sense with most of the charities we work with is this has been an amazing wake up call for them, right? They've realized, you know, shoot, like, do can we articulate our purpose in this kind of moment in a meaningful way, in a transcendent way that inspires people um, even when people are disconnected, this is particularly true of people that are really, you know, gala and event driven. Yeah. And so Boy, when you're, them. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh, I can, I'm sure you guys are dealing with this all the time. But when you're, when your primary moment to give revolves around, you know, people in tuxedos at a rubber chicken dinner, and it's more of a see and be seen kind of situation. And that's what you're dependent upon, you know, it, do I really have a way to communicate with donors that's more transcendent than that, um, than those event kind of CNBC moments? And that's, you know, that's a hard question, but I think this has been a great wake up call for charities and that they're really leaning in and saying, no, we're, we're more than a gala and we have to be able to innovate, um, to, to build that, um, to inspire the imagination of our donors in new ways. Well, um, Let's take a break. I want to come back, uh, talk to you about uh, what you see, what people are doing very badly, what they're doing well, and then get into more of what you've been leading up to about um, uh, how how nonprofits can make a better experience and more personal experience for their donors. We'll be right back with Gabe Cooper. Okay, we will get right back to our interview in just a few minutes, but uh, time for one of our breaks for uh, practicalities, as we call them. And we are here today with uh, my colleague, Matt Gherkin, who is a managing director at American Philanthropic and oversees our data analytics services uh, for clients, which means he's got to think about this stuff uh, in in a uh, semi-intelligent way and thoughtful way. At least we hope so. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me on, Jeremy. Yeah. Uh, great to have you here. Now you wrote, um, a series of articles, I think three articles for, uh, philanthropy daily, uh, sometime over the last couple of months on, on how leaders should and shouldn't use data. And it's, and it was interesting to me because I remember when I was doing my doctoral work uh, in psychology at the university of Texas, and a lot of that was stats. I, I did a graduate minor in statistics. And it's the best thing I ever did, the greatest educational part of my education at any level, because it really taught me how much 
art goes into statistical analysis, how many assumptions one has to make um, uh, and decisions one has to make that are not themselves data driven. I, I, I sense that you were trying to say something similar in, in your pieces. Give me, give me the takeaways you wanted people to get from, from your articles. Yeah, so so not to beat the the dead horse of of COVID analogies at this point, but the whole situation we're in has me thinking about the nature of leadership, both kind of in in nonprofits and and fundraising, or if you're on the grant making side in philanthropy, and how we how we tend to talk about data in those sectors, uh, and how that's a little bit different than how we actually use the data, uh, and how that's different oftentimes than how it might be used well. So. You know, with COVID, we have this kind of really high stakes crisis. That's really a data crisis in the broadest sense. You know, if you're if you're a, a governor or a leader of some sort, and you go back to February or March, uh, there's a lot we didn't know, and yet decisions had to be made. Uh, whether they were good decisions or or bad decisions, you know, may, some of that we still don't know. Um, but you couldn't just say, as we tend to say, oftentimes. You know, in business meetings or you hear in board meetings, well, what do the numbers say, right? What do the numbers say? We want to be a we want to be a data driven organization, and so tell us what the numbers say. And that that can be a good question in some cases, and it can actually be a really bad question in others because oftentimes we're faced with situations as leaders where you have to make a decision now in a in a place of lacking data, you know, that may come in the future, but you don't have the time to make that decision. Or with data that's sort of, um, you know, it's imprecise. We're not sure if it's the right, the right things that we're looking at, or we're not looking at it in the right way. Uh, and so, my thesis in all these pieces is really just the essence of leadership. Often is not being data driven per se. It's how do we interpret data? How do we request the right data? And how do we know the limits of that data? Uh, that's really the essence of leadership. I think I don't know if you thought about it this way, but something our former colleague and a co-founder of the company, Jeff Kane used to, he got really into Drucker for a while. And um, his big point about Drucker was that leadership is, is practical wisdom. It's, it's, uh, it's Drucker's point too. You know, it's, it's very Aristotelian. Uh, and I think that's what you were saying here too, right? It's um, oftentimes we, we hide behind saying the numbers say this, or the data say this, but it's uh, actually numbers don't, don't speak to us in that sort of, demanding way we, we it had to be in this a context of other values and goods right yeah that's right that's right and so i think you know what you were saying about getting a little bit of training in statistics and how that's been great for you uh you know not just because it familiarizes you with the techniques but because it it really lets you know the limits uh and and the context and those things are are very important so you know in one of my pieces i wrote uh, if you are, you know, if you're a nonprofit leader, whether you're a, you know, your foundation executive thinking about a new grant area, you're a, a fundraiser thinking about a new acquisition uh, strategy, and you and you want some data, right? You want some numbers that are gonna that are gonna guide you to make the right decision. You know, there's a series of questions that come before that. You know, things like, is this is this question I have even the sort of thing that's conducive to empirical confirmation or not, uh, or is it? Is it a little bit more complex? Um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing Aristotle when I say, you know, only the fool measures things that shouldn't be measured. Uh, there's that question. There's the, the question of the cost of acquisition of this data, both, both in resources, you know, what would I have to do to actually get these numbers 
if they don't exist already out there? And how much time is that going to take? Do I have that time uh, to be able to give? Uh, and then, and then the last question, which I think is something that that's a little bit awkward for leaders to confront, is: Is there a plausible range of findings for the question I'm trying to answer that would actually change my decision or my organization's decision? Right? Or would I, if it was, if it was something that didn't confirm what I thought, would I kind of discount it and say this is not? You know, this is not something we're, we're going to take into account. We're going to march forward anyway. Or is my board going to tell me, you know, I'm going to have to do this anyway? And, and, and I have that discussion with clients on a semi-regular basis, actually. You know, when you ask me, you know, do digital donor acquisition strategies work? Do you want the, do you want the full pros and cons? Or do you want me to tell you, you know, my board wants me to do this. I'm going to do it anyway. So let's figure out, you know, the best way to try it, regardless of whether that's actually, you know, the best course of action or not. Yeah, I don't think people might be surprised. We're actually trying to save them money a lot by asking these sorts of questions, you know, rather than go through a whole process that costs a lot of time and money. Sometimes, you, you know, you can just get right, get right into it because the, uh, as you say, the plausible range of answers wouldn't really change what you're going to do anyway. And, and all of this is not to say we're, we're for data. We're for having good data and we do analytics for people. Um, but we do try to take you through this process. And the reason we're having this conversation now is I think everybody should go through this process of asking whether um, uh, you even need to do it. You know, are you in a place where it's going to make a difference and it's worth the, the time and the cost? Yeah, that's right. And it's, and it's, uh, you know, I like to joke, Jeremy, that in our work at American Philanthropic, I, I had a little bit of a Nixon uh, going to China element in working on, on this data stuff, because we do have this kind of, inbuilt skepticism that data is used well frequently in the nonprofit sphere, right? And so we set out to say, what are the things that are actually going to be helpful for our clients? And, and, and in what situations are those going to be helpful or not? You know, if you have, if you have 57 active donors, uh, you probably don't need a, you know, a data analytics package that predicts who's going to, to give you, you know, a major gift next year. If you have 10,000 donors, that could that could be potentially huge for you, um, and and so really honing in on those things uh, that are actually useful to you, and then correctly interpreting them. Right, um, part of the the point of this article uh, series of articles is really just charts, graphs, and tables. They're arguments. They're rhetorical. They're not merely data that you look at the data and say, "Great, you know, here are the lines going up. This is what we need to do." They're arguments, and you need to be able to to peel back and think through. The argument that's being made to you and whether it's whether it's correct in a variety of ways, you know, the practical, like, how is this data collected? You know, what are the interests of the people bringing this data to me? Uh, but then also just the wider philosophical, you know, what am I missing that's not in this graph? Um, and that's really when you see when you see really great leadership, I find it's people who are good at that uh, and not just saying, you know, what does the data say? Let's let's kind of abnegate the human element of this and say, but the charts say X, therefore I will do Y. Thanks, Matt. I think you've just proven that here at Givers, Doers, and Thinkers, even our practicalities are philosophical. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk later. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. All right, back with Gabe Cooper founder and CEO of Virtuous. Before I forget, because I always forget to do this at the end of the podcast. Gabe, what's your 
where can people find you online? So yeah, I, virtuouscrm.com is a great place to start. Uh, we did um, release a new book recently, Responsive Fundraising. And so you can find that anywhere fine books are sold. Um, but if you go to our website and click on um, what is responsive, uh, it'll be a great place to learn about some of the stuff I'm talking about. It's a great book. Um, uh, and uh, how is it doing so far, by the way? Are you getting a good reaction to it? Great. Yeah, yeah, really good feedback. I think it's been helpful in giving people sort of a name to something they've been feeling for a long time. You know, I think that's part of any idea or book that resonates is that it's not necessarily something new. It's, it's basically just framing up something that people have felt for a long time and didn't know how to articulate. So it's been, it's been fun to watch it. Well, that's probably a good segue into um, what we can talk about now. I, I would love your opinion. You've been building a responsive fundraising platform for, for years now. Um, what, what's, what are the worst practices you see out there that drive you crazy that people should be particularly aware of if they're in the nonprofit world that they uh, try to get away from? And then what are some of the best, maybe even things we haven't, uh, people wouldn't typically think of? Yeah. I mean, some of the worst, uh, practices I think largely revolve around, um, having a siloed organization. And so, at some nonprofits, generosity is thought about as a means to an end, meaning it's kind of, it's the dirty work that they do over in that other department. We don't really talk to them. The real work of the organization is the program side. And so program really never talks to fundraising, really never talks to communication because, you know, donating is kind of a, a, a dirty word. It's just a means to an end. And I think that creates all sorts of unhealthy behavior. I think in our modern world, the success of a nonprofit is is largely related to their ability to shorten the distance between the donor and the good they're accomplishing in the world, right? And so the more silos you have at your organization, the more distance you're creating between your donors and the good. And um, it's always going to be, you know, high donor turnover, um, a lot of dissatisfaction, the inability to sort of close the loop with donors and follow up on their impact is going to be severely limited. So, uh, you know, that's sort of without naming names of specific nonprofits, I think yeah, that please don't. we don't need to, no, neither of us need to lose any clients here today. Yeah. So leave their names out of it. And on the, on the other side, um, well, there's one that's, it's sort of related to it. We have several nonprofits that we work with who have done a great job engaging their program team in generosity. So uh, a good example, One Hope is one of our, our customers, um, amazing organization, but they have everybody on their program team call donors every month. Yeah. It's amazing. amazing. Yeah. And it's, it's not even like a gift ask. It's just like, sure. Hey, you know, ha- thank you so much. You know, in their case, they'll ask, like, how can I be praying for you? They'll say, do you have any questions about our, our work that I can answer? If they're on the program team, they're going to have firsthand knowledge of, like, stories from the field that they can relay. And that's, it's so powerful, not just for the donor, but in, like, lining up the entire organization around this vision for generosity. It creates empathy and it shortens that distance. So that's a huge one. That's big. I like that a lot. I mean, that's and that shouldn't be that hard. Right. You really, I no, should, everybody should be able to do that. 
Yeah. And it's not, it's scary when you first hear it, but then in practice, it's actually just picking up the phone and asking somebody how they're doing for 10 minutes a month is not that big of a deal. So, um, the other one is that, uh, we've seen a lot of our organizations start using a combination of, of listening to donors by using data and then, um, and then communicating with donors in more personal ways. And so uh, there's all sorts of great examples of this. One of the more creative ones we saw was a few years ago when uh, the hurricane hit South Carolina, we had an organization that had a lot of donors in that area. So they use geolocation. So exactly where their donors live to identify all the donors that like lived along the coast that would have been impacted by the hurricane. And then they used marketing automation to send out um, a series of emails to check in on them and um, marketing automation to prompt people on their team to, to call donors that live in that area to make sure they were okay. Right. And so I thought that was just, that's a sort of a one-off opportunity, but I thought it was an amazing use of both marketing automation combined with data to really uh, sort of love on donors in more personal, meaningful ways. And the, the other principle there is, thinking about how you're giving to donors before they give to you, like generosity begets generosity. And so it just sort of exemplifies this attitude of, I really care for my donors and I want to give to them first. There's a couple of things you said that are worth repeating there that I really like these phrases. First of thinking about how you're giving to donors before you're give, they're giving to you. Um, that's a tremendous, that's a powerful way of thinking. It seems to me it's a great, it's a great aphorism or sentence to help guide how you think about your day. Uh, it's, it's, there can be, I see this all the time. I'm sure you do too. There can be a, kind of a culture set in with certain kinds of leaders where they don't, you know, it's like the donors owe them the money, right? We, we don't owe them anything. We're delivering on this policy or something like that. Uh, so they need to step up. Um, that's not how this works. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the other one is shortening the distance between the donor and the good they do. I mean, that's, I think people struggle with that. That's, uh, it seems obvious in one sense. It certainly seems powerful in terms of creating a more personal connection uh, between the donor and the organization because you're creating a, a powerful sort of feedback loop. But how do you, it, it, people struggle doing that, right? I mean, that's not always easy. No, it's, it's not easy, but I think, um, as nonprofits, we have a stewardship um, sort of opportunity or obligation to, 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 you know, close the loop and actually tell people what they're accomplishing in the world. And I think it's a responsibility. Um, but more than that, I, I think it, it serves to grow giving. I mean, right now, um, one of the biggest problems that nonprofits face is that, 76% of donors will churn out after their first gift. So they'll give one gift and they'll opt out and never give again. And most nonprofits are turning over half of their donor file every year. And, and it's actually not a hard problem to solve because donors actually tell us why they opt out. They say they're getting impersonal communication and you're not very transparent. You're not able to close the loop. That's why they say they're opting out. Right. So if you lean in and commit to, hey, you know, this guy just gave us a hundred bucks to fund a well in Malawi 
And then if 15 days later, they get an, an email or text message or a postcard with a picture of the well that they're funding with a story from somebody on the ground who's experienced life change through that well, like their retention rate is going to be freakishly high, right? And as an organization, it's not just that you have an obligation to it, it's that you create donor loyalty in amazing ways. And so now all of a sudden you have donors that are going to stick around for years because you actually brought them in close in a meaningful way. And so, you know, it's more than just a responsibility. I think it's the only way to grow predictable, sustainable generosity in our current age. Impersonal, uh, another way, uh, fundraising appeals, another way of saying very treating them in a transactional way, uh, right. Rather than something you preach against is this sort of a transactional or sales or accounting sort of model of, of relationship between nonprofits and donors. So that and a lack of transparency, those are the two biggest reasons donors fall off the file. Yeah. Yeah. That, that really is the crux of it. And I think, um, one good model that we found helpful for nonprofits to think about this is, is moving from, um, purely static campaigns to dynamic campaigns. And what I mean by that is, is typically most nonprofits will, somebody will come in as a new donor. Okay. And they'll, you know, 60 days will go by and they're just going to get the next direct mail appeal that was scheduled. So they become a donor in September. They're going to get your November matching gift appeal or whatever the heck you had scheduled for that. They go into sort of the sausage grinder of direct response activities, but that those activities are based on your timing as a nonprofit, not the donor's timing. They're based on who you want them to be, not who they are. And so by shifting your thinking, even if it's in small ways, like I, I'm not advocating anybody dump their direct mail program, especially if it's working. That's the direct mail is amazing. But I think you can start thinking about, you know what, if I didn't just do it static based on my timing, but I knew, hey, if if somebody comes on my file for the first time and I know they're passionate about malaria more than they're passionate about water, what are the next five touch points? And I'm going to let that donor behavior drive that next five touch points, right? Or if I know somebody crosses a $10,000 giving milestone. I know based on that behavior, I want them to get these four touch points or they volunteer. I want them to get these four touch points. Now your campaigns are not just all going out at the exact same time, but they're more driven by the behavior of donors. And if we can make that small shift, even layer that in, in a few key areas, we start to, um, see that that gap is being closed between the donor and the good. This is uh, revolutionary, right, for most nonprofit organizations. But I, I'm imagining this is fairly, uh, this is pretty much um, pretty conventional for a yeah, for-profit corporation these days. Yeah, I mean, I I'm sure. If I'm I, not trying to take. I'm not. I'm not uh, <laughs> denigrating what you're saying, but I mean, it, that's part of this, right? We need to learn from from sophisticated businesses and how they how they um, relate to customers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I if I pop open my inbox right now, I guarantee you I have two emails in there from Nordstrom because I bought a shirt from Nordstrom, and they know. Oh, this is like you know a middle aged dude trying to look good with a graying beard. And magically they send me three emails with guys that look like me with clothes that I would really like. Right. And, and by the way, it's not because Nordstrom has hired some person to spy on me. They're just using my behavior and what they know about me through my purchases 
to drive the next best touch point with me. And it's magical. And what I end up doing is buying a, a stupid amount of stuff at, from Nordstrom and having my wife yell at me, right? And I mean, you know, like, Nordstrom is great. And that yeah. they really get you. <laughs> That's right. But as nonprofits, we have to understand that it's the technology and tactics to pull this off are available. This doesn't mean adding 20 more staff people. It just means being a little bit more sophisticated and letting like listening to our donors first, understanding their intent, and then beginning to even automate some of these next steps is it's not only what's expected by modern donors, but it's what truly drives generosity. How, how high this is a very nerdy inside baseball question. So I apologize if anybody thinks it's dirty, but you, you mentioned 50, you know, most nonprofits, I think our surveys show, the retention rate is like 55% on average, 56%. And I think we're higher in our surveys than other data has shown. So that means um, if a donor gave in 2019, uh, there's a 55% chance he or she will give in 2020, all things being equal, which is, as you pointed out, that's terrible. You're losing almost half of your donors every year. Um, how high can you push that though, realistically? Like, what do you see? What do you think is the kind of a, a ceiling for most nonprofit organizations? I mean, I, I don't think there's any reason why we can't be approaching 70% retention, depending on what our cause is, what we're doing in the world. I mean, you're always going to lose people because they have life changes or, you know, something happened in their life. You know, all of a sudden, yeah, they had a kid that got type one diabetes. And so now their, their charity of choice becomes JDRF and you can't help that. But so you're always going to see some churn, but when donors themselves are telling you, look, we stopped giving because you were impersonal and not transparent, like those are fixable problems. And really, <laughs> we can push that up, right? Those are fixable. Those are fixable. But it does take, it takes obviously uh, technology and platform um, uh, innovation. Uh, and that's where you guys attack the problem. Uh, but it, it takes other things too. It takes things like having your program staff call your donors and tell, talk to them about what they're doing in the field and what they're seeing and thanking them for their support. So it takes culture changes as well. Um, so, but you guys, let me ask you, is, so you, you solve or try to solve anyway, you solve for like digital fundraising, you have a digital fundraising solution or digital um, communications solutions more than fundraising. Um, and you can correct me on the on the wording there for what we're talking about here. But it, it, what I'm always shocked by is um, how little money is raised in this country through digital uh, means. It, it's astonishingly low still. It's been rising, of course, but it's not. I think the average listener might not think it's 50% or something like that. It's not even, it's like 5% or in our surveys, it's even lower. Um, so it, tell me, talk to me about that. Is digital fundraising oversold? It, um, is it, um, has it transformed nonprofit uh, work? Will it transform it or is it going to supplement it? Or am I being way too skeptical? Well, I think, um, I think it's in a way kind of the wrong question to ask and that, that digital is just, um, it's just a channel. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it's a how somebody gives, it's not why they give. And the why they give is infinitely more important than how that gift is fulfilled. And so I would say even with our platform, 
um, we're freakishly focused on multi-channel. So even like with our marketing automation tools, we'll send direct mail through marketing automation. We'll send postcards. We'll prompt your team to call the person. We'll, you know, add somebody's name to the major donor reps portfolio based on wealth metrics. You know, we'll, we want to hit them multiple ways on multiple channels. And, and by the way, that's what your favorite brands are doing too. When I, when I mentioned about more Nordstrom, I guarantee you, I'm going to get a mailer and a catalog because of my behavior as well. Right. And so you have to be multi-channel um, to be effective and your channels have to be working together. And so I think digital is a nice, um, you know, inexpensive way to do that. But at the same time, our, our email inboxes have become so cluttered lately that it's hard to break through. And so, um, I do think leaning into more why donors give than how they give. And I think the only way you get to that point is by listening to your donors. Uh, my, my joke that my team is sick of hearing me say is my grandma used to tell me that, um, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. You need to listen more than you talk, right? And so as nonprofits, we have to have better mechanisms to actually listen to their don- our donors, figure out what their intent is, what they care about, what channels they're most likely to respond on, where they are in their donor journey, and respond accordingly, sort of in a channel-independent way. I think nonprofit leaders, Gabe, are often afraid to listen to their donors, uh, they don't want to. <laughs> does that make sense? They they don't want to be derailed from what how they want to go about things. What they want to focus on by um, the petty uh, uh, whims and desires of of their of their donors. I mean, there's and there's some obviously there's some validity in that. Like you don't if a nonprofit is solely driven by what its donors think, um, then it's it. it might, may as well not have a mission, right? It's it's really just a for-profit corporation. But but don't you feel do you, do you find that I certainly find that it's like I, I don't want to ask our donors. We we often want to do like donor surveys for um, people that are very incredibly enlightening and helpful. Uh, at least at kind of a thirty thousand foot level, um, and people are amazingly resistant. Like oftentimes, like no, I don't want to know what my donors think. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the biggest things that plays into that is number one, we're planning our fundraising activities and, and writing some of our messaging, you know, six months a year in advance. And we have thousands of dollars invested in it. And it's, it's really scary to ask a donor at that point, what they think, because, you know, we might find out that all this time and money we just spent isn't good or right. Right. And so it's just, it's scary. And so I really think, to be able to move in this direction, you have to commit to listening, but then you have to have a couple of different cultural norms in your organization. One is that it's okay to fail. And so I, some of the best organizations that I know admit and celebrate failure because they learn something. And so at your organization, if you find that you're slapping down people that fail all the time, like that's probably setting a bad cultural expectation. It has to be okay to fail and learn. And if you celebrate that all of a sudden, it's like, no, I want to hear what donors think. If we're doing it wrong, I want to know if we're doing it wrong. And then the other cultural norm, I think, is you have to be faster and more agile, right? So if you think there's a different message that's going to resonate with a group of donors, it can't be a six-month committee planning process. you got to be able to, like, you know, for example, quickly launch a set of Facebook ads for a couple hundred bucks that test two different messages, and you 
you find out quick, oh, donors like this, they don't like this. Or you send out a survey to a quarter of your file and say, hey, what do you think? What drives you? And it's not a six-month planning thing. Again, it's just like quick iterations to learn. And when you do that, it actually it starts to remove that fear of listening. There, that is, I mean, I'm often very skeptical of this stuff, but that is something clearly that can be learned from sort of like how the tech world operates, a sort of iterative, experimental, um, you know, it's very uh, inductive, not deductive, you know, way of, of learning. Um, and I, I know plenty of, of nonprofit leaders who do slap down people who fail, <laughs> you know, failure is very much penalized uh, and not, not celebrated for what we learn from it, but a more... Um, inductive grassroots Hayekian sort of way of going about, about all this might be the wiser approach. All right. One more question for Gabe Cooper, uh, CEO and founder of virtuous uh, before we let him go. Uh, one of the things that struck me, I don't know where this is said, this might be on your official website or something, but I ran across it somewhere. You talk about putting the joy back in fundraising. And I want to know what you mean by that. And, and what saps joy from fundraising in the first place that we need to put it back. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's, you know, a few different aspects to that. Um, for me, even thinking about this more recently, I think that um, if we see our donors as names in a database, like if we see them as ATM machines, it's going to be a pretty joyless pursuit for us. And so the more we can see generosity as an opportunity to give to our donors, to transform the heart of our donors and connect them to impact, and we actually get to know them in more personal ways, it's going to put joy back in our fundraising. Like you can't, as a fundraiser, when you're, you're sitting with a donor and they're, you know, tearing up because of the impact that they've been able to be a part of. And, and, you know, you know, like, their kids' names, you know, um, what makes them tick. I mean, that is that is a joy-filled experience. And so the more we can lean into truly knowing who our folks are, learning about them and creating that personal relationship and finding ways to create it at scale, we're going to inject joy in fundraising. Very good. I couldn't agree more. Um, check out Gabe uh, uh, and Virtuous at uh, virtuouscrm.com and their book, Responsive Fundraising. When you get a chance, we recommend Virtuous all the time. To people, it really is the right solution for a lot of nonprofit organizations out there. So, uh, Gabe, uh, thanks for your time and your wisdom. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a joy. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Take care.